0: Testament lesson is found in Genesis chapter 12, we're reading verses 10 through chapter 13, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, "'What is this that you have done to me? "'Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? "'Why did you say she is my sister, "'so that I took her for my wife? "'Now then, here is your wife, Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negeb. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. That was a little tepid. I know it's strange what we're about to work on, but this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. There we go. Let's pray. We do give thanks for your word. It's only in your light that we see light. We know that there's only darkness in us, apart from your spirit. And so we ask that you would come and speak, Lord, for your servants are listening, amen. One small matter, yesterday during the men's work day, I did injure myself slightly. And so if you see a little bit of a gimp, it's not me adopting adopting a new gait, it's just a little recovery happening. And so um Also, if you, uh, we would request your prayers for this afternoon, John and I will be traveling to Manning, South Carolina, the great metropolis, for the installation of Daniel Miller, who you may remember as one of our interns. He'll be installed tonight at New Covenant Presbyterian Church, and so we're going to participate in that ceremony. Be leaving shortly after the service today, um, and I'm not running out to the Jags game. I think they're playing. I've heard about these things. So, um, and I know none of you will be leaving ahead of communion to go either. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> but we're, uh, we're continuing on in our series here on the life of Abraham. And we get into the second scene. Last week, we saw the call of Abraham where he is called into the land of promise. God affirms that promise. He gives a large survey of the land. He builds two altars for worship. And it's important for us when we look at the life of Abraham across the broad range of Scripture to affirm that Abraham is a hero. He's a hero of the faith. But oftentimes when we read the Bible and we know that someone is heroic, we then have a tendency to whitewash everything that they do that may be less than heroic. And it's important to understand in, in American literature, they call Abraham's figure the unwilling hero. That is that he's a man who learns faith and he learns obedience and he learns what it is to entrust himself to the promises of God through a process of suffering and trial. And so everything we read about Abraham in these chapters from Genesis will not necessarily be comforting. And you don't have to say, oh, that is such commendable behavior. And here when we come to the second half of Genesis 12, we find the first of three scenes where the promise that God makes to Abraham is actually contested and challenged. And in this first scene, we specifically learn about the pilgrimage of faith. That is the pilgrimage that Abraham was walking and the pilgrimage that you and I walk. And this morning, we'll look at three things. We'll see the challenge that confronts us, each one of us, as we walk on the pilgrimage of faith. We'll see the folly that tempts us in this pilgrimage. And we'll see the grace that keeps us. And so I have coming to the Lord's table this morning. Let's consider each of those points individually. First, the challenge that confronts us. Our passage begins in verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Abraham has received a promise from God. But then he encounters an obstacle, and the obstacle we are told twice in verse 10, for a matter of emphasis, that there was a famine, a severe famine. In Egypt, in the ancient world, was a standard place to seek refuge during a famine. The Nile River Valley was fertile, and even in times of difficulty, it could still produce. And so under worldly counsel and by worldly wisdom— It was a good, rational, prudent, wise, very Presbyterian decision to make. Let's go to Egypt. The problem is that Abraham had no command from God to go there. God had taken Abraham to the land. He had shown him the promised place. He had walked it north to south. He had settled there, and God had said, It is here, Abraham, that I will bless you. And so what we see happening is that Abraham goes to sojourn in Egypt. Now this is not a long extended three-day weekend. In the original, the word for sojourn is just to live or to dwell. It indicates that Abraham was going to settle there in Egypt. He had left the place of promise due to the obstacle of the famine. Now we're we have this indicated for us that there's something wrong in a very clever literary device. In verse 10, we're told that he went down into Egypt. And then if you look in chapter 13, verse 1, you see that he went up from Egypt. And in the book of Genesis, you'll find this device used on several occasions where it's not just indicating geography for us, but going down into Egypt is to descend into chaos. It is to turn from the promise of God. It is to go down from the holy place. And so this is a spiritual and moral commentary about Abraham's condition. He was turning away from God. But it raises the question, very natural question, why would he so quickly abandon the promised land to go dwell in Egypt? God had just made this great promise that he would receive land and blessing and descendants, that he would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. Why would he so quickly turn? It's a very common factor, one that we can understand. The problem for Abraham is that he couldn't see how the promise was going to work out. There was an obstacle, there was a famine. And he was squeezed between that obstacle and God's promise. And as he was squeezed, he retreats out of the place of promise and he goes down into Egypt. And friends, this is the challenge that we all face. Even though we live at a different place and time in redemptive history, we all face obstacles that incite fear and challenge us as to whether we can believe in the trustworthiness of God and the goodness of his promise. Abraham was facing a crisis in the promised land. And the fear incites him to collapse. God's promises to Abraham did involve that land and those blessing and those descendants. Those promises were all foreshadowings. They pointed in a direction, a direction that was fulfilled in Jesus. But those promises today still come to us. They've been transformed and renewed and expanded today in Christ for us. And we continue to live in these same dynamics, though. We, too, have received promises from God, promises that we have received and promises that we struggle to embrace because we don't always see how it's going to work out. We too get squeezed between the promise of God and obstacles that we perceive that are in our path. We're confronted by them. And perhaps one of the most common that afflicts us as the people of God on this pilgrimage of faith is a promise that we find in Romans chapter eight. Paul writes this, and we know that God works together all things for our good according to to his promise to those who love him. That this is God's promise to us, that he's working everything together for our good. Of course, the promise is difficult to embrace because so many of our circumstances and so many of our situations when we look at the sadness and the suffering, when we look at the disappointments and when we consider the dangers that we face, when we count up the betrayals and we consider our hardships and trials, how can we trust that all of that that God is using for good purposes? Because we don't see the goodness in it. That is the obstacle. We only see and perceive the obstacle. And so when we can't perceive God's purpose, when we don't understand his plan, we're asked to trust his promise. When his design is hidden from us, when he seems far off and remote and that he's forgotten us, we're asked to trust that he's working these things for our good. And friends, this is what requires faith. And we have obstacles, huge obstacles in front of us. And we're asked to embrace God and trust that he's working his good purpose out. And so, yes, Abraham had this collapse of faith that was induced by fear. And we are walking that same pilgrim road. Later in the story, promises fulfilled in Jesus— And yet we're also awaiting something and we have promises from God and we stumble and we struggle to embrace those promises. The second, we see also that there is a folly that tempts us. In verses 11 through 13, as Abraham travels or as he's planning to travel down into Egypt, he concocts a plan. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. So he does concoct a plan to save his own skin. Due to Sarah's beauty, he instructs Sarah to claim that she is Abraham's sister. Now, he thought that no one would kill him because of that. And most likely, what he was doing is he was attempting to protect Sarah. If you look at other chapters in the book of Genesis, chapter 24 and 34, you'll see it is the role of a brother to protect a daughter, a sister, to protect a sister from suitors, those who would come and make advances towards marriage. And so Abraham probably thought with his deceit that he was going to be able to protect Sarah and honor her and keep her as his wife inside of his home. He got more than he bargained for. He didn't anticipate that Pharaoh, the greatest person in the land, was going to admire Sarah for his beauty and go and take her and bring her into his harem. It was an unforeseen complication. But it was a complication brought about by Abraham's scheming. What was Abraham doing? He was operating according to his own wisdom. Fear had already induced this collapse in which he left the promised land. But now in his fear, he is scared for his own life. And so not only has he left the promised land, but he endangers his wife by calling her his sister. Because Abraham had been promised descendants. And yet now his wife, who was to bring those descendants into the world, is out of his house. Abraham is engaged in a folly that was brought on by his own wisdom, a plan that seemed good to him. But it was not a plan according to the promise of God. And so he was operating in his religion on his own terms. And he was using what made sense to him and he was jeopardizing everything. And so Abram here has descended from fear into just all out folly, where he has thrown it all away. He addressed his fear by turning to his own wisdom and we too feel all the pain and the temptation of that. He did it not once but twice, his folly had grown. And yes, Abraham, he found food, And he found safety in Egypt, but he was also spiritually famished. You'll see that there's no note of Abraham worshiping as he had done in the promised land. It's uniquely missing in this passage. He got what he wanted, but he got nothing of what he needed. And friends, it's important for us not to just simply marvel at how hard-headed Abraham was. But we need to look at that Passage. We need to look at this, and we need to look at ourselves in the mirror. We need to ask how we multiply our own folly and how we live by our own wisdom, especially when fear is inciting our decisions. It's important to ask the question, how do we avoid this debacle? When we face an obstacle, how do we avoid then turning to our own wisdom and being driven by our fears? Calvin makes a very pastoral suggestion, recommendation, and he advises that we should meditate constantly upon the inconveniences, upon the difficulties, and upon the dangers that will lie in our path as we seek to follow after God. Now, Calvin recommends that you meditate on all kinds of things. The goodness of God in creation, the beauty of the cross, all the things that are to come. He writes hundreds of pages upon things that we should meditate upon. But did you hear what he says? To meditate upon the difficulties and the inconveniences and the dangers, to familiarize yourself with them, to know them, to know how those things could take you down and turn you to folly and induce you to embrace your own wisdom. Friends, we have to be wise like that. We have to know where we are weak, where we could walk into Abraham's folly, where we could fail to embrace the promise of God because we're scared and because we think we know a better way. That's that folly that tempts us. But finally, in this passage, we also see a grace that keeps us. In the final verses of the chapter, we see that God blessed Abraham despite himself. Abraham has done everything to throw this away. He has left the land of promise to live in Egypt. His wife is away from him. He has no opportunity for descendants. But this is also the best thing that you can hear today because it does not thwart the promise and the purpose of God but rather God works it out. In spite of all of Abraham's fear, in spite of his folly, God still delivers, that he has a purpose, and he's committed to it. In verse 16, we see that Abraham's possessions multiplied. Abraham gets a dowry price for his own wife, and he enhances his household. What had God said said he was going to do to Abraham's household? That he was going to be great. And so despite all of his disobedience, God was making a great name for Abraham, a great household, a great people. And then in verses 19 through 20, Pharaoh discovers Abraham's deceitfulness. And then he sends Abraham back to the promised land. And there is some irony in the passage here because the same word that Pharaoh uses, go, has been spoken already in the chapter. And it was spoken by God when God told Abraham to go into Canaan. And friends, Abraham is being rebuked for his folly by a secular king who doesn't know God. Why did you do this to me? Go back to your homeland. And the important thing for us to remember in all of our fear, in all of our folly is that God works over and against us. That God works above us and beyond us. That God works regardless of us and despite us. That his purposes and his promises are sure and secure. He has sworn these things to us in Jesus. And our hearts are fickle and they are unfaithful and we struggle, we're full of fear, we collapse into folly. This is the pilgrimage of faith, and we learn and we grow into obedience and believing. This episode is an illustration of God's determination to accomplish all of His promise. It points out all of that weakness in us. But even more so, it points out the commitment of a faithful God who is going to redeem all things. Because this promise to Abraham was not simply about him having a son. It wasn't simply about one generation, but the promise to Abraham was about God's great plan to bless the nations of the earth. That promise finds fulfillment in Jesus, the seed of Abraham, and he comes to bring that blessing to Jew and Gentile and everyone who looks to him in faith, that their sins would be canceled out, that he, the righteous one, vouches for them in his death, and that by faith in him we are made right with God. But this promise is not done in all of its fulfillment, that this promise reaches us into the future. There's still a horizon that we behold, that God will bless the nations, that he'll free the nations, that the nations will bow the knee to King Jesus. And friends, that is what we wait for. And we journey and we pilgrimage by faith towards that. And we embrace those promises Because of all of God's goodwill expressed in the cross of Jesus, that we believe that yes, God will never forsake any word of promise, even when it goes beyond our understanding, even when we cannot see his purpose, even when his face seems hidden, that he is working this for our good, that he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also in him freely give us all things, Paul argues. He's given the son. How will he not give me everything else? That's God's commitment to you. And he's working in us this unwilling, heroic character that we learn obedience and faith through our sufferings and through our trials and through our failures. That we, like Abraham, come to trust God. And so you will feel the obstacles. They will be present. Don't allow the obstacles to incite those fears and to lead you into further folly. But in the midst of all of your shortcomings and all of your failures, know your God who's committed to those deep and great purposes in Jesus. Let's go to him and ask for his help in prayer. Father, we do give thanks for your overarching commitment to us. We know that we're false. We know that we're full of sin. We know that we struggle to believe and to trust your promises. We stumble like Abraham. Even after so quickly receiving all of your good plans for us, he turned. And we do the same in so many ways. Fear and folly lead us astray. But we give thanks that in Jesus Christ, you have bound yourself to us, that we are your people and you are our God. And so convince us and persuade us that we know that nothing can separate us from your great love in Jesus. Write this deeply upon our hearts, inscribe it. And we ask God that we would believe and trust in all of your good ways in our world and in our lives. Father, this morning we bring our many burdens and concerns, our cares on behalf of your church. And so hear us as we join our hearts in silent prayer for the following concerns.